Welcome, everyone, to our Bumper Sticker Faith Podcast. This is episode, I think it's 97. Episode 97, my name is Sam Key, and uh, I'm here uh, with a special guest from the Netherlands, and he, his name is uh, Jeffrey Finn Paul. And you're a lecturer at Leiden University, correct? That is correct, yeah. And so a professor in American parlance. Okay. <laughs> and uh, your fields of interest are economic and social history in Europe and the Mediterranean, 1300 to the present. That's a, that's a pretty big chunk of history. It's a big swath. I like to go global. I mean, I call myself a global historian and a lot of people in the Netherlands specialize in that. So we kind of look at the big picture in the long term. Did I did I read correctly that you like do history and research in eight different languages? Yeah, I had to learn a bunch of different languages during my PhD training, uh, basically from everywhere in Western Europe. So and I'm originally American. So, I mean, okay. I, I grew up in the States and so I'm an Anglophone, but I had to learn all these European languages. It wasn't easy. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was born in Florida. Okay. And then in eastern Pennsylvania is where I called home for a long time. Eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, I know. Her- around Hershey, Pennsylvania, that area. Yeah, I'm a little further. I'm right on the border with New Jersey. So it's Bethlehem, Allentown area. Okay. I have family in Allentown. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm in Chicago right now. But um, know that area. Um, yeah, it's not a bad part of the world, really. No, Despite the, the Billy Joel song, that's all anybody knows about <laughs> Allentown still, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, let's see. Um, so, um, history of Europe and the Mediterranean, 1300 to present, urban institutions, state formation, public debt class, and what I wanted to get to, and slavery in relation to economic growth. So, mm-hmm. so you actually, you, part of your discipline and study is a study the history of slavery. Is that correct? Yeah. And we started a book series and a journal on global slavery. So the idea is to do comparative slavery from all over the world, because for many years, all anybody knew about was the Atlantic slave trade Hmm. and even the American version of it. People don't realize, I think, 90 percent of the slaves that went across the Atlantic went to Brazil. Hmm. You know, so there's just so many things about slavery all around the world that, that people don't know. And that's that's where we started out. But that, of course, got me into trouble with some of the dominant narratives already. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's all about being able to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And is that how you um, wound up at, at Leiden? How, how did you wound up at Leiden University? Yeah. Well, part of it is the Dutch-like economic history. And that's what I do. I mean, I'm an economist. And so all the little specialties that you saw are kind of that you listed are coming out of my expertise and fascination with how economics and history come together. Uh, and in the United States, it's mostly social history. It's mostly political history. People are scared of the numbers. Mm. So it was easier to get a job there, but also, yeah, already during my dissertation, I was under pressure to write about, I had to write about persecuted minorities wherever I was. And if you didn't write about that, then you were already, you, your book wasn't going to get praise, for example. Uh, and I found that that's just a weird bias because, you know, I'd like to write about the other 95% of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an economist, I want to look at the big picture 
and and how everybody fits in. It's not like I'm against writing about minorities, but everybody was doing it. I found it a little dull. Yeah, and it seems like like overall, you wanna you wanna you wanna find objectivity. Yeah, to- and and also, I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to make the world a better place for everybody. Yeah, and a lot of that comes with measuring economic growth. How do we make sure that everybody has a share of the wealth? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the answers that my peers offer based on just social things, based on constructs such as racism, that's part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. And when you don't have an accurate picture of the picture, then it's not good for it's not good for anyone. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, that's why I wrote my book, Not Stolen, is that um, I found that so many of my peers, because they're scared of any numbers at all will assume that some phenomenon involved millions of people in the past when it might have only involved a couple thousand. Mm -hmm. And so I can easily criticize them just by looking at a fundamental difference like that. Yeah. I was uh, doing some uh, scrolling and that's how I came upon uh, your book. And yeah, the title of it kind of stood me in my tracks uh, because there's a title, Not Stolen, um, the truth about European colonialism in the new world. And I thought that's pretty bold. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, that's pretty bold. And, um, it is, it's, and I mean, certainly my publisher was happy to have me do a bolder, more provocative title. But what I like about what I do inside is that it's a very nuanced read. Like the, the title's designed to get your attention. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's what I figured. And it did get my attention because, I grew up in the American system, obviously. Well, not obviously, but uh, from in public school and up to university and so forth. And you just get kind of used to what you're used to and what, what they're teaching about the typical narrative that um, Columbus came over, we stole Indian land, we committed genocide, uh, we're bad people, and uh, I... I hadn't thought any really any differently. You know, that does, that doesn't sit well with you, of course, as you grew up and in, in that, but um but then that title stood out because it's like, well, what if there's what if there is more to the story, right? Um, what if there is more? And and the first thing I found when I started investigating this is that 20 years ago, most historians had a pretty balanced picture of what happened between Europeans and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. It was not all about genocide. It was not all about stealing. There was a lot of give and take. Well, that's kind of like what I remember from my my childhood, like in high school and that. I do remember it being um, taught more balancedly. But then in recent, more recent decade, basically, um, all this, you know, quote unquote scholarship and that coming out, it, it causes you to rethink. And I think, oh, well, you know, my podunk teachers in rural Ohio where I grew up, they just didn't know anything. And yeah. and, and now the true history is coming out. But but the first thing I want to establish is that you're you're a true historian. And it I mean, just the the bio sheet, you're you're a true historian, uh, eight languages and so forth. And um, and you appear pretty like you don't have an axe to grind. Like I love our initial contact with each other when I asked if you'd be on the podcast and you said right away yes I will so long as you're not a white nationalist <laughs> and I'm like I yeah I chuckled but I found that sad at the same time um yeah 
Um, but but I understand what what you're getting at. But you do appear to be you know pretty objective and trying and, to keep things in the middle. I think the left has gone off the deep end nowadays. And then there's always yeah. Then there's always the pendulum swings. Uh, both exactly. Ways. And yeah. you know, 20 years ago, I was more angry at the at the right being um, you know not taking too many, they were taking too many liberties with the facts, I thought, in general. But now I think the left has just gone wildly off the rails. And so, you know, for me, it's history is all about the facts. It's about science, really. Yeah. It's, it's a form of science. Talk about, for a second, the right um, and what, what you just mentioned, how 20 years ago the right was taking things out of, out of proportion. Any examples well, of that? Well, I mean, I, I was teaching at the time of the Iraq War and... I was really upset that there definitely seemed to be some fibbing going on about the extent of Saddam Hussein in the WMD and how many casualties were being caused in Iraq. And I was just thinking, you know, you shouldn't have to lie about this stuff. If there's a justification for the war, just tell the truth. Yeah. You know, so I'm I'm all for supporting American military intervention if it's done on the basis of truth, if it actually is going to help more people than it's Mm going to hurt. Um, then that's great. I mean, I think that's what American military power has always been for. That's why it's been moral. Uh, but, you know, for the most part. But, um, yeah, if it's based on obvious fibs, mm-hmm. then that's not good. And I feel that's what's going on with American history today. Yeah, People are just telling obvious lies. There wasn't uh, a, any consensus or talk of genocide amongst historians mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, this is normally a faith-based podcast when we talk about issues of faith and um you know it's called bumper sticker faith because i like to mm-hmm. peel away the bumper stickers and get at the truth and i think that's part of what's um intriguing me about your work too because you're doing that but with history and the yeah. lessons that we're being that we're being taught and um i i think it's the thing that i want to i guess accomplish is to help people ask well what if you know to question like the dominant narrative out there right now. And like, I got a new job this week <laughs> and um, I'm in, I'm in a, uh, yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a plant in a sort mm-hmm. of like a manufacturing facility and they um, nicknamed it the United Nations <laughs> because okay. the people who work there are just from all over a lot of Eastern European, mm-hmm. just from everywhere. And I'm sitting, I'm standing there actually all week you know, with my new colleagues, and uh, there's a huge American flag on the wall of this American, you know, company, and mm. there's not a doubt in my mind that these people are, we're all very grateful for this company and to have yeah. a job, and that they can't, some don't even speak English, like the guy right next to mm. me, Astrid, he doesn't even speak English, but I know he's grateful for this country. Grateful well, you know what? to be here. I was I was just driving around Italy uh, this summer. I was driving around Eastern Europe last summer, and in every rest stop on the highway, they're selling American flags. Wow. And the the fact is, people throughout Europe look to the United States as a land of plenty, a land of opportunity, but also a moral place where, generally speaking, people have done the right thing. Yeah. So for all its flaws. So what like what happens when you teach a generation, uh, as has happened, you know, recently, falsehoods. What happens when you uh, teach a generation that their country, society, and history 
are quote unquote uniquely awful and that America was founded on slave labor and stolen land. What happens when um, to us, I guess, first, but then what happens to the world when you teach that? Well, I mean, that's that's a big one, but I'll try to be succinct with it. I mean, in in Canada, um, where I lived for seven years uh, and met my wife, um, Canadians would say to me, you know, really successful Canadian business people and stuff, we really look up to America because they have self-confidence. They believe in the American idea. And our founders realized, and in the 19th century, you know, the people who came after them realized that in order to create a strong country out of a whole mix of people from all over the world, they need to have one idea that they all believe in. Yeah. You know, the e pluribus unum thing, the freedom, the liberty, the flag, all the opportunities. But the idea is that you become an American when you come here. You don't mm-hmm. keep your separate identity. Um. And I think that this new racialism, this new identitarianism that we see being fashionable because of social media in the last 10 years, I mean, it's good for people to uh, celebrate their own identity, of course, but Americans have always done that. Italian Americans, Irish Americans, we've always done that. American Indians have always done that. Um, But now the idea is, it seems like the left is trying to splinter everybody and keep us all into little separate tribes, if you will. And they're doing this also by um, by denying the the goodness of the United States. They're trying to break down the e pluribus unum. They're trying to break down the unity, the idea that you're even American. In Oregon now, you're not allowed to teach that people are Americans. Hmm. Like they, they they put that in the curriculum. I just saw that today. Wow. Um, and I'm saying, what kind of country what kind of unity are you going to be able to create you're you're going to have chaos you're going to have anarchy and one thing that leads to violence and oppression you want violence and oppression try try anarchy uh, and try having a society that's split into pieces because after world war ii we really did impose democracy on japan and germany and most of the world except for the communist bloc fell in line with this idea of prosperity, democracy, capitalism, and human rights. And the United States has led that global order backed up by military might. It has to be backed up by military might or you're going to get chaos. Um, But we've done it morally. And I think to to break that apart at a time when Russia and China are being real threats, when the threat of uh, uh, autocracy is so high, it hasn't been this bad since the 1930s. That for the left to be so myopic as to, you know, kind of scupper the American ideal right now is just, it's suicidal, it mm-hmm. seems. Yeah. Wow. I um, I read a poem this week by a, a Native American uh, woman, and I have it, I have it here. Um, mm-hmm. Diane Glancy uh, from the, uh, I forget which tribe, um, But um, she said she recognized on the one hand, she says, any culture that has undergone assimilation is not happy. So she she recognizes that, you know, some it's not it's not always good when someone another culture comes and, you know, takes over or forces assimilation or whatever. But then she added and she said, imagine a foreign country imposing itself on your land. But then she added, yet the positive aspect was that salvation came through assimilation. And she said, 
while there were many losses to the Native American people, um, I cry out to God with whom I now identify, who also arrived uh, with the white man. I just found that, uh, like her perspective was, uh, these these white men brought, um, like I said, this is a faith-based uh, podcast, mm. but they brought Christianity to us, and she thought that that was far and away um, worth it for her. And like those are people aren't people aren't talking like that. And and her poem itself says, "Have mercy on the uprooted, on the unwanted, on the made over to fit somehow. You reform us, Lord. You yourself were remade." To a struggling, to a man struggling on the cross, you were thought odd, you were dismissed. In that we are one. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, the, you don't see native. Uh, you don't see well. A lot of Native Americans actually are still pretty cool with the whole American project. That's yeah. the funny thing. I think it's really pundits on the left that are pushing all this identity politics and this division. Um, but there's a lot of Native American people that are thankful for many things that were brought over. I mean, you know, just every convenience of modern life, for one thing, but also really important um, philosophies and the Christian faith. These are things that have given support to, mm -hmm. to millions. So I think um, I want, want to continue by talking about, like, the. I want to set up the old world versus the new world and what they both uh, I looked like. I think that's a good place Mm. Uh, to start. So we had the old world, uh, Europe, Africa, but then there's the new world. What what were they both like? What were some of the um, differences in well, them? I mean, the, the, the old world was, of course, very varied. I mean, there was Africa, which was very similar to the new world in lots of ways. So it was a tribal society, which meant that um, political units were small, so everyone was always fighting with each other. And that's the way it is whenever there's tribal society. Mm -hmm. You know, but then in the old world, there were the old civilizations that had learned farming and built cities. And this was starting to happen in a few tiny parts of the new world around the Aztec and the Incan empires. But they were actually very small-ish, you know, central mm -hmm. Mexico and parts of Peru and Ecuador. Um, so mostly, yeah, the new world was... A tribal society it was mostly stone age the the tech level was about the old world equivalent of being from between 8000 bc and 3000 bc so the most advanced parts of the new world were about the same as the old world uh in about 3000 bc wow. and then the old world had 90 percent of the population mm. um the new world only had 10 percent, which is why they were susceptible to diseases mm -hmm. Uh, and then, you know, the old world, because it had way more people, it developed technology and civilization more rapidly uh, than the new world did. So by the time the Europeans arrived, I mean, they had they had gunpowder, they had thousands of years of metallurgy and other technology behind them. Uh, they had gone through the Renaissance. And so there was a lot of uh, important developments that had gone on when the two cultures first met. Mm -hmm. And like as I tried to place myself there, um, and if I'm in the old world, like I, it's it almost seems inevitable that if you're from a pe period that went through the Renaissance that has all that going on, ninety percent of the world's population, and it, it's almost it seems inevitable that somebody's going to go over and look at this new world. It just, 
it, yeah. because people, I guess the rhetoric is why didn't they just, you know, stay put, leave it alone. Not it's, I don't know. That's not how the world works. It's just, right? it's never so, how things work. I mean, work. it would have been either the Chinese who came over yeah. there. No one realizes this, but the Arabs colonized all along the Indian Ocean and made it all the way to Indonesia and the Philippines. Mm. So there were, oh, and East Africa too. So talk about, you know, cultural imperialism. The Arabs were spreading mm. their civilization, you know, for thousands of miles. Yeah. No one blames them. It's you a, know, they turned many African kingdoms into... Uh, Arabic societies, they imposed their culture, their religion, and they started taking slaves. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, sooner or later, someone would have, you know, come in and rained on the New World Parade. Mm-hmm. And it's just like today when when uh, the last few tribes on a, on a few islands in the Indian Ocean are contacted, it's going to be a major culture shock when 90% of the world meets a, a small isolated group. Mm-hmm. So... So was the land uh, stolen then, I guess, is yeah, yeah. the question. And and um, th- does that narrative stand up to historical scrutiny with based on how people, groups move? And uh, it's it's about survival, too. And talk about that, about the land being, yeah. you know, quote, unquote, well, stolen I mean- or not. When we talk, uh, so so the answer is, I mean, yes, of course, to some degree, there was duplicity. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is, is it wasn't nearly to the extent that most people think, you know. Mm-hmm. So so the question is, it's nuanced, but but you can't just say the land was stolen. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain. First, most population in the New World was, again, in 50% was in central Mexico. So 50% of all the people in the New World. And today, 80% of Mexicans are either natives or mixed race. Hmm. So in Mexico, no one talks about stealing the land. Europeans have remained a tiny minority, actually. They just interbred with the, with the Indians. Everybody got married mostly, mostly peacefully all through the years. Uh, and the Spanish came in and they established government, but they didn't steal the land. And many Indian pueblos were allowed to retain their land for centuries. So that brings us to North America, where the population density was about one one hundredth as much as it was in Europe. And then disease was brought over entirely accidentally. We have one case of smallpox blankets. Everyone believes in smallpox blankets. That didn't happen. Uh, But disease just spread across the continent. And then, you know, even more people died. So you maybe had a million or two million people in the entire United States area. Um, So was the land stolen in the East Coast where Native Americans were, had just learned corn farming and squash farming? Um, Most of that land was actually purchased piece by piece by the Dutch and the English and, and other settlers. So we have a land market in the 17th century where there were actually Native Americans acting as real estate agents and buying and selling mm. land. Why were the natives so keen to sell land to the English? Well, they were dependent on them for gunpowder and clothing and metal tools. They didn't have their own blacksmiths. Ben Franklin actually wanted to teach the natives to, to smith so that they could be more self-sufficient. Mm. Um, but what happened is whenever tribes would fight each other, there'd be marginal land in between the, the tribes and they would just sell that land off for cheap because they didn't really want it because their enemies were living nearby. So they would just sell it off. 
Um, and so, yeah, there were prospectors, there were people being unscrupulous, but it was mostly a land market. Um, and so the, na- and then, the, the Native Americans had their own enemies, Native American enemies, oh, and yeah. they used the English or the Dutch you know, to, their, to help them deal with their own enemies. There were several wars, the Beaver Wars and the Fox Wars in the 17th and 18th centuries, where native tribes were trying to move closer to the French and the English so they could trade with them. And they would try to exterminate other tribes to keep oh. them from being able to trade with the French, for yeah. example. Yeah. So, so that's what we're talking about. By, the, by 1820, I think the Iroquois had conquered almost all their enemies around the Great Lakes. And there was maybe about 10 to 20,000 of them in the whole Great Lakes area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, tiny amounts of people. I remember learning, and this part I do remember from history class in like high school, it was, it's basically taught that the Europeans brought over disease. And in my teenage mind, and maybe it was even taught like this, it was intentional. Like we brought yeah. over disease and we intentionally killed everyone. And it wasn't until recently, you know, when all this, you hear all this stuff and, and this crazy talk and I rethought, rethink about it. And it's like, there's so so much anachronistic thought um, reading our current technological uh mind and knowledge back into history as if they even knew where diseases came from that they were carried that they, that there was bacteria or virus they didn't know any of that or that it could spread yeah. you know hindsight's 2020 they they didn't know that it would um they didn't even know this the size and extent of the continent you know when if they landed on the east coast they had no idea it would you know disease could spread that way and all i'm i'm just it's frustrating because there's so much anachronistic thinking and yeah. I don't know. I'm- That's the basis of a lot that goes on. So, so when the native Americans first came across the land bridge from Alaska in like, you know, 15 or 20,000 BC, they started hunting all the big animals that were over here. Those animals were not used to hunters armed with stone tipped weapons. Mm-hmm. And those animals succumbed uh, to the hunting. And there was a massive die off of about 50 major species within a couple thousand years. Now, should we blame those paleo Indians for killing off those mammoths? We can't blame them because yeah. they had no idea how big the land was. Yeah. And they had no idea they were hunting too many of them. They just yeah. hunted the ones that were nearby that you could actually kill something off. And so, so they had no idea you could kill off an entire huge mega species, but, but that did happen. And it was the same thing with 17th century people. They, they didn't know how to control cholera. They, mm-hmm. they thought it was the pestilence in the air that was causing the problems. And so, you know, they might bring smallpox over and it would spread, but it might spread hundreds of miles from where they were. They yeah. had no way of knowing that. Yeah. So did they intentionally spread it? No, we've literally found this one instance of it. So... Mm-hmm. To pretend otherwise, to pretend that they were responsible for that is, is very silly. Also, Europeans had gone to Africa and Asia, set up trading forts over there, and nobody died of disease because they were all part of the bigger disease pool, but nobody knew that either. Mm. So they had gone to India, nobody died, so they figured they were going to come mm. over to the New World and nobody was going to die. So by trading ports, what do you mean? What kinds of things would yeah. they trade? So, I mean, Europeans set up 
trading ports on the coasts of Africa and India, so the Portuguese in uh, Goa and Macau, and they traded in Asia all sorts of things, spices and etc. In Africa, it was slaves, usually captured by other African tribes, and gold and ivory. But in Asia, it was, you know, the whole full uh, spread of things. Mm -hmm. And so Columbus actually came over to the New World thinking he was going to set up trading forts similar to what the Europeans were doing in Africa and Asia. And he didn't expect there to be a massive collapse of the population. Mm -hmm. And he, why, why, how could he have predicted that? Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. There was no way to predict that. And the other anachronism I think we read back into history is the way we do things now or would do things versus the way life happened then. And, and when uh, and it was more about survival then, and you did what you had to do, just like you mentioned the native Americans who almost or wiped out species. Um, they, they did what they had to do to survive. And um, I remember someone, someone uh, uh, getting in an argument with me pushing back on this a few years ago. And I said, because they said that the white Europeans came over and I said, as if any other people group has ever gotten a land, a land any other way, like that's just the way the people always did it, did it. And they didn't think anything about it. It's, you know, knowing history um, straight back, even to Bible times, one, tribe or country comes over they take over that's just what happens right look what was going on in canaan i mean there were just yeah there were so many different groups fighting each other and it was it was really a kind of survival of the fittest you know and if the israelites hadn't had uh the backing of yahweh they they wouldn't have made it as long as they did i mean that's what their whole history was mm. about Talk now about the Native Americans themselves, because they're portrayed as, uh, and, we, and we've hinted at this already, but were they just this, these peace-loving uh, environmentalists um, versus the Europeans who were the exact opposite? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, this is what kind of gets my goat about these land acknowledgments, because why do people get upset when a European tribe bought a piece of land or even stole it during a war or conquered it mm -hmm. during a war from a Native American tribe? When most of those tribes, if you look back even 100 years, were not occupying the land that they were occupying when the Europeans okay. arrived. So the Sioux Indians are claiming the Black Hills, and there was this big thing about Ben and Jerry's, you know, six months ago or whatever it was. Um, and they claim the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. But if you look at their history, they came from Lake Superior region uh, just a couple hundred years earlier, and they had oh. defeated about seven or eight tribes in war to take that land. To get that land. <laughs> so the tribes who were defeated by the Sioux you know, they're not exactly happy that they were pushed off the land. Mm -hmm. they, they were forced out. Often the tribes were almost exterminated in, in war or their women were assimilated into the Sioux tribe and children. 
And so uh, there's often almost a sort of genocidal uh, aspect to what was going on, if you want to talk about genocide. So, so in a tribal society, it's the same way in, in Europe after the Roman Empire. German tribes were pushing each other everywhere. If you look at the map of England in the 600s, there's no one kingdom that stays in the same place for more than 100 years. It's just natural. The Aztec Empire did the same thing. They were pushing out and exterminating tribes all around central Mexico. That's what reality was like. So the idea that they were environmentalist, the idea that they weren't sexist, they had very strongly defined gender roles. Mm -hmm. uh, women were carrying stuff. They were doing the farming. The men just kind of, uh, a lot of European commentators say the men are, quote, lazy because they just wait around for the next war. Mm. You know, so there was definitely defined gender roles. So the idea that they had some gender utopia is another basically made up story. And then when two tribes would fight each other, would fight each other, what would happen to the losing tribe? Well, that's it. I mean, if you're in this kind of situation, what do you do with the male captives? They're mm. all trained as warriors. So basically, if you don't kill them, they're going to come back and get their revenge. And mm. so that's very often what they did. If the men were captured, they might be enslaved, but usually they were just killed off. And then the women and children were forcibly taken as slaves and brought into your tribe. Yeah. So where, where do you think... What's happening here, I guess, presently, culturally? Does it have something to do with, I think it's Luke Holland in his uh, book Dominion, who talks about how the like, Christianization, I guess, of the West and like our very, our, we're sensitive, more, we're more sensitive to this now. We have these, these values that say, look up for stand up for the little guy, the oppressed. I mean, these are all very noble things, you know, that we're wanting to do. We don't want to oppress people in that. Um, is that kind of what's at, I don't know, does that make sense? At, is that what, what's at play in our culture today? Because like we mentioned, uh, if you go back to the times of the tribes and the settlers, they're not having an existential crisis about why this is happening because that's just the way it happened. Everybody knew that. Tribes did it to tribes, like we said. But it's only now that we're starting to question this. What's, what's going on behind that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a combination of, you know, the long-term development of democracy and the advent of Christianity. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the Romans and the Greeks had democracy, but they were a pretty brutal culture yeah. and they had the arena wars. And then the Christians came in and banned arena wars and they eventually banned slavery also. Mm -hmm. And they taught that all, you know, men and women are all descended from God and they all have equal souls. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this, you know, survived the Middle Ages. And then when Europeans started interacting with other cultures, this strong Christian tendency to to be self-critical to say hey we're supposed to be moral we're supposed to be better than the other people mm -hmm. we're supposed to care about the downtrodden and the poor mm -hmm. this is what las casas did the famous monk who, who wrote about uh, spanish oppression in the new world a lot of the fuel that the left has is based on christian monks criticizing the the adventurers and the ne'er-do-wells who were being mean to the natives mm -hmm. so the spanish had a conscience from the get-go and I think that this has, during the Enlightenment, been even more magnified in the West. These, these essentially Christian values uh, can come out and turn into the modern concept of human rights. Mm -hmm. So it's the West that comes up with the Geneva Convention, mm -hmm. that comes up with the United Nations, the League of Nations, the war to end all wars, these mm -hmm. concepts of being 
kind of spreading peace, those are fundamental to the West. And that's that's one way that Western culture is, you know, pretty much superior. I don't know how else you're going to say it mm-hmm. to to most other cultures in the world. They care about the average person. Mm-hmm. And yet that's exactly what the who whom the narrative is against. It's against, you know, the West. Which is ironic. That's what really gets my goat. You know, because it was the British who were freeing the slaves along the coast of Africa. They were telling African chieftains, you can't enslave and sell Mm. other people. They were telling the Turks, you cannot do this. They banned slavery with the League of Nations in the 1920s. There was a universal ban that was being pushed by the British and the French Mm. and the Americans. So the, the right now, ironically, and I see this kind of Marxist, you know, kind of uh, desire to turn everything good into something bad, you know, say something that is the opposite of what it is. Uh, that's the critique that Europeans are getting. You know, I think that European civilization did so many things right that the left's only uh, response is to basically gaslight and try to flip the tables entirely mm-hmm. and, and tell us all the opposite. And mm-hmm. they've been so successful via social media. It's kind of, it's, it's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm constantly wanting to be aware of um, one's own shadow, the the parts of yourself that you don't like, that you want to disassociate from, that you pretend aren't there. And so in a, in, in a real sense, having two sides to things uh, can be good and can be beneficial. And I, and I, and I, and I definitely want like, if if I'm in the wrong and going down one way too much, I want someone to call me out, you know, on on my shadow, on the things that I, that that mm-hmm. I don't want to be there. And so, it is a it is a it is a gift, I guess, to have someone to have a, a group questioning you. Um, but but we also need to be aware, I think, of the danger of uh, uh, the you know the left saying going one direction. Um, there's the left will have a shadow too, right? Yeah. And um, I guess, what do you think the danger of um, the left's narrative, this this alt left narrative, uh, going too far? What's the shadow side that can come back and and yeah. it won't be good that people in that position and espousing these narratives just has to be aware of. Well, that's it. I mean, I think when you look at the facts, the United States, Great Britain and Western Europe are the best places in the world to be a minority as well as being just a a general citizen. So Mm -hmm. if you want to protect minority rights, you go to the United States, you go to the UK. That's right. But I think with the less narrative, if it gets too out of control, is literally trying to undermine. They would kind of like to see the United States project just kind of fall apart. And then what would they happen? They want to see it completely yeah. Yeah, uh, fracture. And I ask on a practical level, you know, Native American youth have historically been overrepresented in the United States military because their warrior culture actually led them to, to fight for the U.S. And I'm thinking... Native American youth who hear this story, they're not going to enlist. And and what are they going to do instead? What kind of jobs are they going to have available besides a career in the military? And then I look at the average U.S. soldier being posted over in China to fight against aggression there. Mm -hmm. And and I think, what are these people really going to believe in? You know, there there was a kid who walked across the border to North Korea because he was told that the United States was a terrible place. He actually thought North Korea might be a better place to go. Oh, wow. 
Wow. You know, and so this is the kind of thing we're seeing. And I think the 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 poor in the United States, and I think that minorities who are historically oppressed are going to be taught that the United States is irredeemable. It's mm-hmm. not a place of hope. It's not a place where democracy can make things better. Mm-hmm. And so instead of that narrative, they're going to feel hopeless. And when you teach kids to be hopeless, that's when society really starts to fall apart. The rot sets in. And nobody believes in anything anymore. Yeah. I see that in, I have a couple of kids and I, I'm always thinking about them and their generation. And you know, and as I'm around kids, their outlook to the future and their own country, it's, it's pretty bleak. It's pretty, there's a, they can easily let despair come in. And I was even around some 20 somethings uh, last week um, who, uh, a, a group of friends who, um, they refuse like to get married. Um, and, and the reason is because they don't want to have kids because they say the future is so bleak for them based on yeah. what they hear and, and that. And, um, yeah. And so they hear climate apocalysm. I mean, look, even if the climate is deteriorating for whatever reasons, get out there and fix it, do something. about yeah. it. Don't get hopeless, but we're being yeah. taught by the by the uh, narrative that we can't do anything that we have no power that everything it's game over already and um, that to me is just the stupidest possible message to teach anybody it's the opposite of what what is the moral thing to do I mean we're supposed to when they go and get tough we're supposed to figure out what what to do next yeah so I partially wrote this book to give people hope okay you know I wrote this book to say to people no things aren't as bad as you think mm-hmm you know, and the narrative you're being fed can be questioned. It is not based on facts. It's based on dogma. It's based on uh, despair. And I think my opponents basically have a cynical despair of the way the world works. Mm-hmm. You know, I say in my book, Pocahontas got along really well with the English settlers in Jamestown. Mm-hmm. I've had some professors say to me online, you know, basically whenever a native got anywhere near the English, they were slaughtered. Mm-hmm. That's complete you know, completely yeah. wrong. They they were they were all encamping next to each other. They were all visiting each other all the time. Pocahontas ended up marrying an English settler. I mean, all these things, uh, all these interactions were happening, but we're getting this ridiculous black and white cartoon mm-hmm. version of things. That's that that's that repressed shadow idea uh, that I was talking about. Uh, whether it's uh, interpersonally or among people groups like when you can't talk about something when you can't even talk about something then it 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 grows in power and strength it grows demonically i think and it's not that's not a good it's not a good place to be in no and i look at what president obama was allowed to talk about i mean he was allowed to say that reparations for slavery were a silly idea yeah he okay. said this throughout his presidency but now after his presidency, mm-hmm. he can't even bring that up anymore without wow. the left telling him that he's right wing. Yeah. Wow. So I love uh, your your book and like the table of contents. Each chapter is a different <laughs> explosive question, basically, which to me is is great because you're, you're giving us permission to ask these questions. Yeah. Um, and... I'll just read some of them. Um, Chapter one, intrepid explorer or genocidal maniac. Chapter two, did Europeans commit genocide in the new world? 
Chapter three, were Europeans racist? Chapter four, were the conquistadors bloodthirsty zealots? Uh, chapter five is Europe guilty of settler colonialism. So it goes on for like 20 chapters, but yeah. different great intriguing questions that yeah. you can the big questions yeah the things you hear online the things all the knee-jerk reactions you'll get on facebook mm -hmm. posts or something that's what i wanted to tackle and look at the historical reality and the nuance behind it which you never get online that's what i like the word nuance um mm. because uh you're you're not you're not because the danger is the pendulum swinging either direction you're just trying to provide the facts the history uh, the the balance to it, which is uh, which is what we need. There's always there's always something more <laughs> to every story. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't have dozens of peer reviewed publications if I couldn't do mm. nuance. That's the thing. You know, the first thing that they used to teach you in this field was nuance. Mm. But now I'm afraid even the peer review process has, has gone off the deep end because everybody's so off to one side that they'll only approve things now that are that are agreeing with what they already want to hear. So what can like the average uh, person do who's caught in this cultural fray with these explosive you know questions? What do you think the average person can do to uh, help bring things uh, back to more balance or, or nuance yeah. in their lives? Is it just being willing to, when these issues come up, to say something as simple as, well, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe not, you know, to question yeah. that way? Or what do you think? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I think that a lot of these discussions are going to be had around the Thanksgiving table. Um, mm -hmm. Bring a copy of my book. No, <laughs> no I'm a big argument. I'm, yeah, <laughs> Columbus Day is this week, so... Yeah. And um, but I mean, honestly, I think that parents need to push back uh, at the school board, mm. not for something that's ideological crazy, but they need to push back towards nuance. They yeah. need to say, let's have a balanced history of things. And they need to realize that things like critical race theory are actually pretty far off to one side. Mm. You know, so align with groups that are pushing a more nuanced uh, uh, history curriculum. Bring back civics, bring back the idea that the United States is something worth fighting for. Yeah, for sure. The left will pay lip service to that. You know, really pin them down on that point. Mm -hmm. If the U.S. is worth fighting for, tell us how. What would you find acceptable? So, um, and then, you know, vote for candidates that, that push this kind of thing, like the 1776 Project, things that are pushing back against the radical interpretation mm -hmm. and, and the nihilistic interpretation of U.S. history. Mm -hmm. No one should believe in nihilism. If nihilism is, is the dominant philosophy that you're pushing, then you know you're wrong. Talk about that. What is that for our listeners? Well, yeah. I mean, nihilism is just... Uh, so it's literally the belief that everything's going to come to nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, that nothing matters, that, that the world is essentially negative. And I see this in the climate alarmism. I see this in the left who's arguing that everything is always been racist and it always will be mm -hmm. racist no matter what we do. You know, this whole systemic racism thing, that's originally a Marxist concept and it doesn't take the democratic process into account. It doesn't take the fact that, yeah, the civil rights movement happened and black people got a lot more rights. This was a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, women have more rights than they did 100 years ago. This is mostly a good thing, right? Yeah. 
Uh, and, and yet the left won't admit that anybody has more rights than they did 100 years ago, which is just so false. But they do that because they want to push this nihilistic view that, that everything is always going to be wrong. Uh, what's the what's the sense in that? It leads to just with, to hopelessness, as we were saying before. Mm-hmm. What do you think's behind that? Because I can, I'm a microcosm of uh, you know many people and groups in that, and and I, I'm prone to despair. You know nihilism at times. You know you mm-hmm. have a bad week in that, yeah. and so I'm just trying are. to think when when I get there. Um, you're right. I, when, whenever I get there, I lose. I'm losing sight of the big picture in my life. I'm losing sight of a vision, of a purpose, of my, of my why. Right? Who was yeah. the Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning when he discovered that those who in the concentration camps, those who are most likely uh, the Jews to commit suicide and give up, he realized they didn't have a why. They didn't have like a family member to go on to or or a meaningful career or a country to go back to that they felt. And so he said that uh, the person who has a sufficient why can get through uh, any how. And I I see that, like I said, within myself, but trying for America, for our country to get back their why, I think... I think that's what that's why we need a why. No, you've explained that very eloquently. Um, And I mean, you need heroes. You need people like Abraham Lincoln during the darkest times did not give up. George Washington during the darkest times did not give up. Thomas Jefferson, there was all this wrangling going on. And he said, let's create the most ideal state that we can. Um, And so these are the people that you look to. You look to people who during the darkest times, Mm -hmm. they saw the light and and went for it and didn't lose sight of that. Mm -hmm. And the United States has always had this founding myth, and that's because our forebearers were wise enough to realize that to bring uh, disparate people together, they need a focus. You know, and Christianity used to be a big part of that focus, Mm -hmm. but the whole Western cultural, cultural milieu has all these Judeo-Christian values all suffused through it. And, and you know, why are we seeing a rebellion against that? Partially, you know, we're seeing a rebellion against Judeo-Christian values. But partially, we're just seeing a, a, a very Marxist rebellion against the West, against capitalism, against all the good things that it brought. But ultimately, I think the people who are attacking me on YouTube or something and calling themselves Marxists, I see a sad person who is really despairing and they have a sort of sadism that's born of masochism. I think they have mm-hmm. a psychological tendency towards self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And so they'll gravitate to Marxism like, like moths to a flame. Mm-hmm. And so wow. I think that it's this despair. So when people yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. A, a larger thing to look towards, then they turn to the self-loathing yeah. and it can consume them. Yeah, self-loathing, that's not a good place to be in. And, and we mistake that. Well, that goes back to this idea of, uh, of Christi- Christianity being baked into our Western system where we think, well, that's just, I'm just being humble. That's just humility. But self-loathing is far from humility it's it's probably more akin to pride i would say where true uh biblical humility has to do with uh, the truth knowing the truth about yourself like yes in these ways i fell short 
but um, there's forgiveness, there's tomorrow, there's this greater thing I can live for, and I'm going to press on. Uh, it's, it's, and, and, and self-loathing and, um, and yeah, that, like I said, that's more akin to pride. Well, um, the I Oxford think. theologian, uh, Nigel Bagar just wrote a piece in the spectator a couple days ago where he says that a lot of these West haters are often ignoring all the bad things that other cultures did. And he says that almost comes from this kind of, uh, self-obsession, so this self-loathing that they have is they don't even think about people in the rest of the world. They only care about yeah, kind of yeah, their own yeah, yeah. sins That's right. to such an extent that it becomes a sort of pride, exactly as That's you right. said. So Nigel Bagar just said the same thing. That's right. And when you're in, just to tease that out just a little bit more, when you're self-obsessed, uh, when you're self-loathing, that's being stuck on yourself you're not capable of empathy towards the other. That's the dangerous part of it. And yeah. believe me, I, I, the, uh, I'm in therapy, and my therapist pointed this out to me. He says, when you're stuck on yourself, when you can't yeah. get, get over a sin, when you can't forgive yourself, you, you're not capable of empathy towards the other. And you're going to yeah. repeat destructive behaviors again. And that's yeah. a huge danger, uh, I think, of this. Uh, like on the one hand, I want to affirm it's good to point out sin or wrongs or evils that people have done. But like I said, there then there is forgiveness and you have to be able to unstick your navel gazing and move forward with, yeah. the, with a bigger vision, right? It's hard to be a good father and a good husband if you're too self-obsessed with that kind of thing. Because what these people in your life really need is your support. And That's that right. means you have to have empathy with them. That's right. And I find some of my harshest critics, again, usually people who call themselves Marxists, are people who will say the most nasty things that professional historians never say to each other. Mm. And that that nastiness, I think, comes from this kind of despair and self-loathing mm. and self-obsession, where they, they can't even imagine the effect that they're having mm. on another person. Yeah. I was with a, a, a buddy of mine, and he was having a, a, rough, a rough week, to say the least. And... Uh, because of ways that he failed in his marriage and as a father and mm. um, just he was beating up on himself. And in, in my mind, I said it, I said, picture this, like you're, you're in this battle and you're the king. Okay. And uh, say you mess up as the leader of your army. And now you decide in the middle of the battle to go back into your tent and just sit there and cry. Like, yeah. what are all the soldiers going to think? No, you need to, okay, shake it off, get back yeah. out there and lead the way, lead your people. Yeah. Like they're, that's counting the way, they're counting on you. Yeah. And, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation, again, that's a microcosm, I think, of, of well, of our own lives. But then the rest of the world does, for, for whatever reason, look to us to get out there and, I think, lead the way in a lot of yeah. ways. Absolutely. You're, you're so right. And, and again, I'm looking at so much of Europe. They're talking about the United States all the time. I mean, so the U.S. falters and this whole idea of a world order based on kindness, based on morality, right. based on human rights, based on democracy, which is all about spreading those fruits. Uh, that's going to that's going to fall. What do you talk about? Um, talk about you mentioned. Uh, like Abraham Lincoln and uh, Jefferson and that, and 
and now we want to look we want to cancel you know people and topple statues and that people who have mistakes in their past and this is particularly sensitive to me because i have mistakes in my past too mm. and um um i guess talk about how how what's the proper way to address people who have flaw which is everybody uh yeah. this goes back to my christianity too everybody has sinned and fallen short but when uh these heroes that we have of our country or of our faith when they have these this baggage how do we interact with that in a healthy way because yeah. the tendency as we've seen is as soon, as soon as some baggage or some fault then we totally get rid of them and i think there's a huge danger to that yeah. but talk about maybe what's a healthy way to interact with flawed yeah, yeah, leaders. That's, that's a really good question. So I was at Jefferson's house, Monticello a couple years ago, and the guide said, Oh, well, you know, Jefferson kept slaves and he didn't acknowledge his, uh, his slave wife. So he was a bad man. And basically we can't think anything good about him. Mm. And, you know, I just think, how difficult is life on this earth anyway? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not an easy thing to be a human being. So if you manage to do something like write the, the bill of rights, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you manage to write the declaration of yeah. independence, then yeah, you're going to have all sorts of flaws that anybody could point to. But the fact is you've done something to move all of humanity forward. That's lasted for centuries. And that in and of itself should never be lost sight of, especially when there's all these countervailing things. Jefferson, it seems, would have abolished slavery if he could have. Mm -hmm. He actually banned the transport of Africans to the United States when he was president. He actually banned the importation of new slaves. If that doesn't count as a good thing, he was against so much political pressure mm -hmm. uh, to do that, but he did it anyway because he knew it was the moral thing to do. Um, so... When someone has those kind of achievements, yeah, we're all human. We're yeah. all flawed. But realize that the critiques you're hearing of these people are probably politically motivated and exaggerated in the first place. And that they ought to be revered because of the great good they've done, which far outweighs the evil. Wow. That's great. And like as if we'd do anything different if we were there. We we have exactly. these we have these huge just just we think we're so much better. Yeah. And if I were in that situation, I would do differently. And I want to say like, okay, let's, let's fast forward a thousand years from now or 300 years from now. It'd be like saying, well, if I lived in 2023, I wouldn't have a cell phone. It's like, yeah. really? You, yeah. You're going to say that. Yeah. This yeah. is like, everybody does this. <laughs> everybody has this. Yeah. You're, you're really that sure of yourself. It's just, yeah. So, so out they're of saying, touch. you know, they would say something like Jefferson should have freed his slaves. Well, if he had freed his slaves, he would have been poor because all the wealth in his state was uh, based on slavery. And he would have been so poor, he never could have written the Bill of Rights or mm. been president. Mm. So is the world better that Jefferson knew slavery was kind of evil and he wanted to get rid of it, but he had to deal with it because that's mm. where all his money was? Uh, and then he went on to do amazing things and set the U.S. on a, on a great course. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the kind of decision yeah. that you have to make in real yeah. life. And no one's empathizing with that. That's right. And like from a, and from a biblical standpoint, yes, we condemn sin. We don't, we don't sin that grace may abound. 
But Romans 8.28 is still true that God works all things together for the good. You just have to even look at the story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis, where all these horrific things happened to Joseph, but yet God had it, made it that way so that Joseph could be in this position where he could actually save his people. So like yeah. in like in my mind, it's just this miraculous, beautiful thing that God uses the darkness to paint a beautiful picture. He, yeah. he, can, he can do that. He can use these horrible things, which are legitimately horrible, but to bring out um, something good. And I think yeah. that's a word of, uh, it's a word of hope to, it's a bold statement of hope to me when it comes to like toppling statues, for instance, where you yeah. can look at one of these flawed figures from history. If you topple them because they have sin in their life, then what's the next generation going to think? They're going to think, wow, that was literally a Jefferson or literally a Lincoln, and I'm nowhere near that good. I have all these sins in my life. I might as well just kill myself now. I might as well not even try. But yet, on the other hand, if we can boldly keep those statues up and say, look what God can do with a flawed person, look what a flawed person can accomplish in this world, that gives me hope. Yeah, and if you if you take down the heroes of generations, history shows that there's no replacement for them. You take down Jefferson and Washington and Lincoln, nobody's going to come up that's going to have their stature. And again, we yeah. are talking about symbols of hope that everybody needs. You know, Martin Luther King said the arc of history bends towards justice. It takes a long time, but we have to have faith that it that it moves towards justice. Um, and and so that's one reason to keep these milestones of hope. We realized there was flaw going on, but we keep these milestones to keep us pointed in the right direction. I love that. Milestones of hope. Yeah. That's great. So as we, um, as we wrap it up, um, I've heard, I don't know who said this, but um, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. Um, what, do you, what do you see that, we're in danger of, I guess, if you could summarize it, boil it down. Um, you're a historian and, you know, knowing patterns of history and that and where we're at today, what's like the, the front end of the battle? Well, you know, I think in the 70s, things were more simplistic amongst intellectuals and we believed in absolutes like Marxism or some other kind of ism. And I thought during the 90s, we started to abandon those absolutes and realize that history is complicated and mm -hmm. there's two sides to every story. That's right. But social media has erased that progress, I think, and brought back people who believe in one kind of absolute or another. So we're seeing a resurgence of absolutism in the intellectual world that I never thought I would see. And so the danger is too many of my colleagues, you know, come in seeing the world in a black and white sort of way. And they're capturing institutions all across, not just the universities, but governments and businesses and teaching these absolutist ideas. And if we don't get back to the center, to compromise, to realizing that there's a complex story everywhere, then we might be in, you know, for a weird sort of dark ages that we haven't had in the West in a long time, you know, since the Enlightenment, really. Wow. Uh, because we're, we're moving away from truth and towards some kind of weird dogma that somebody has constructed. You know, that's so true with how reality works. Like whenever you pick up a new task or a, a new, like, I, I'm always getting into like 
learning about different things. And when I first pick up a book on a subject, then I, I tend to then speak in absolute terms. <laughs> but mm -hmm. the yeah. more you study it and even get a degree in it, when someone asks a question about that subject, you're more likely to say, well, it kind of depends because you have yeah. this whole uh, his, you know, knowledge base and it's, yeah. it's, it's not always absolute. But you're saying that it doesn't make any sense that these so-called history professors – uh, who who know all this are speaking in very naive um, terms about things, absolute terms. And originally to get social media points, you know, and they're being rewarded by all the wrong uh, for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and so the the whole sense of of justice and truth in the profession is, has been knocked off to the side by social media. We have to figure out how to get it back. Wow. So. I guess positively then from history, have you ever seen, uh, are you aware of any moments of history when uh, pe people struck, when we struck the balance uh, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there was the Salem witch trials in the 1690s and everyone just got this kind of witch craziness. And it's similar to what we saw in Canada with this kind of burning of all these schools a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then the enlightenment came along and people just got tired of, all the kind of, all the hype, all the mass hysteria. I'm hoping that we can look forward to a new enlightenment era when people get tired of all this social media hype. Mm -hmm. And we realize that we need to be reasonable. We need to be grown-ups. So I'm hoping that the fashion can change, but I'm just hoping we don't suffer too much damage as a society before that happens. Wow. Well, thanks for being my guest today. My guest is, uh, Jeffrey, Finn, Paul. I don't even think I introduced you, but uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we just wanted to get right in. Yeah, we'll make sure uh, that that happens. So uh, I want to encourage people to uh, get your book and wrestle with these uh, issues. Mm. Is there any other? I saw a, a video that you did on Dennis Prager. Um, yeah. Uh, Prager U maybe is the website. Yeah. People can find that. It's about a four or five minute. Um, it's pretty good. A little encapsulation yeah, of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's under Jeff Finn Paul on YouTube, and you can find that and a couple others. And you write plenty of scholarly articles. Um, where can people uh, go to learn more about your work? Yeah, in well, these my, areas? my university website, if you Google me, Leiden University website comes up in a lot of my different publications. You can look on Amazon. I have an author page there, too. Okay. So that would be great if people check me out. Yeah. What's it like in the Netherlands right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, the weather-wise, we're weather -wise. having uh, unseasonably warm weather, okay. so that's good. We need a little bit of that around here, I think. Um, so, yeah. But uh, generally speaking, you know, culturally, things are still a little more even-keeled. The Dutch are a little more skeptical of things that come across the pond. So, but yeah, we're definitely seeing the beginnings of culture wars okay. here as well. Any last words that you have that you'd like to leave my listeners with? Um, yeah. No, I mean, the main thing is, is we have to we have to band together against uh, this kind of extreme distortion of the truth and find uh, a common hope uh, that we uh, as a country can all uh, come together on. So that's, right. that's that's really what I'm aiming for. That's right. My wife and I were just talking about that uh, last night. She was she was not aware that I was having this conversation with you uh, today yet. Mm. Um, but she was saying similar things that if, if we don't have something to fight for, then we're just going to be 
we're going to be lost if something ha- you know more dramatic happens in our yeah. country. So <laughs> on that terrible note, <laughs> mm. thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, be, thanks so much for having me being my guest. And um, yeah, so thanks everyone for joining us. Um, go to bumperstickerfaith.com uh, for our website. You can learn how to support this podcast. You can be, even become a BS crew member, a Patreon uh, member who supports us, helps us to have these amazing guests like Dr. Jeffrey Finn Paul from the Netherlands uh, on the show. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. So, again, I just really thank you for coming on. Yeah, no, this um, was great. I love having long-form conversations uh, sometimes. So this was a really good one, and I think you brought out all sorts of interesting aspects of, of what the project is and how it relates to, you know, people in general and people's faith, and this was really cool for me, too. Good, good. Yeah, and I, this is, it's important. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's very important. Like, my wife's the more, she's, yeah, more intuitive and, well, maybe not more intuitive, but it, it can go to a bad place if we um, continue to mess these areas yeah. up. And it's like we're, I don't know, we're flirting with this, but we don't realize how close to the edge we are and what, what could happen. Oh, yeah. No, I think we're flirting with with serious danger here. And of course, the left won't talk to me at all. And, you know, there are aspects of the right that are really into this, but the right is pretty fragmented. And, you know, so a lot of people don't even realize the danger that these history wars and the culture wars pose. Yeah. 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 When you mess with truth, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Jordan Peterson says this so much mm-hmm. that um, you, you don't want to you don't want to go against the truth. Like that's not a good place to be in. I picture like you're standing with your back against the ocean. (laughs) It's like, um, you don't want to do that. It's going to take you out eventually. Yeah. No, as a society, you can't, you can't progress if you don't believe in truth. So almost all the progress that Judeo-Christian society has made since the Renaissance has been based on learning more and more about how the facts of the universe are. Mm. And almost every traditional society that just kind of stays the same for thousands of years, they just believe in whatever their dogma is. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm afraid that that's where we're going with these identity things is we're, we're looking at dogma and it's it's okay to distort the truth as long as you're saying the, a nice mm. thing to, to a downtrodden person. Yeah. You know, but that's not how it works. The way to help black people and American Indians is to tell them the truth about their history and they have to deal with it as grown-ups, not spoon feeding them something. Yeah. That's treating yeah. them like children. Yeah. It's the same with treat... same with an uh-huh. alcoholic or anybody. Yeah. It, you don't yeah. just continue to tell, oh, you're fine. Uh-huh. You're good. Uh-huh. You know, this is you're you're the best. Everything you do is perfect. No. Yeah. No, no. Sooner or later, somebody has to have some tough love and say, look, you're an alcoholic. You need to deal with this. I will help you. I will be with you. But you have to take some steps yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Sam. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks again. Good luck with your project. Good luck in the future. All right. Thank you. You too. If you need anything, let me know. Will do. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.